amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 201st episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a terrific young actress who is currently in the process of breaking through into full-fledged stardom. She is just 27 and has only been acting professionally for the past eight years, but she already has made a major impression on one streaming service's Hallmark show, Netflix's House of Cards, on which she appeared for parts of three seasons as the high-end call girl Rachel Posner, earning a Best Guest Actress in a Drama Series Emmy nomination for the third, and she is currently starring on what could soon become another streaming service's Hallmark show, Amazon's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on which she plays the title character, Midge Maisel, a loving and supportive wife of a not-very-good amateur comedian in 1950s New York who, when her husband leaves her, ventures into the world of stand-up herself and proves to be a natural. The show's pilot was unveiled by Amazon on March 17, 2017. Shortly thereafter, the show was picked up for two seasons, a major vote of confidence, and the remaining seven episodes of its first season hit the service on November 29, 2017. Little more than a month later, on January 7th, 2018, the first season was recognized with the Best Comedy Series Golden Globe Award, and its star was recognized with the Best Actress in a Comedy Series Golden Globe Award. In a few months, an Emmy nomination will almost certainly follow, and in my humble opinion, the sky is the limit for this tremendous talent. Rachel Brosnahan. But first, I was joined at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter by two of the people who today run one of the oldest and greatest film festivals in the world. Carol Och, the artistic director, and Christoph Mucha, the executive director of the Carlo Vivari International Film Festival, which I have had the privilege of attending in each of the last two years. Carlo Vivari, which is also known by its German name, Carlsbad, is located about two hours west of Prague and is one of the most beautiful settings imaginable for a film festival. Bisected by the River Tepla and famous for its therapeutic thermal waters and spas, as well as its 317-year-old Grand Hotel Pup, one of the oldest hotels in Europe and the primary inspiration for Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel, Carlo Vivari falls within the region known as the Sudetenland, which was annexed by Germany in 1938, but became part of Czechoslovakia again after World War II. It was then, in 1946, two years before the Soviet-backed communist takeover of Czechoslovakia, which lasted until the Velvet Revolution in 1989, that the Karlo Vivari International Film Festival was established. In 52 of the subsequent 71 years, film lovers and filmmakers from around the world, including Shirley Temple, Gregory Peck, Robert De Niro, Leonardo DiCaprio, the Coen brothers, Robert Redford, and, over the last two years, Willem Dafoe, Charlie Kaufman, Ken Loach, Uma Thurman, Casey Affleck, and Jeremy Renner, have descended upon this town, which today has a population of about 50,000, to celebrate cinema over nine days in the summer. And today, thanks largely to the tireless efforts of my guests, the Carlo Vivari International Film Festival stands alongside Cannes, Venice, and Berlin as one of Europe's truly great film festivals. Carol and Christoph, thank you for fitting this in during your brief time in L.A. between the Palm Springs 
and Sundance Film Festivals. Appreciate you doing it. Thank you. Thank you for having us here. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. I, I mentioned that the Carlo Vivari International Film Festival has been around for more years than there have been editions of the film festival. Can you explain why that is, Krishnan? The thing was that at that time, the organization FIAF, they decided it's not necessary to have two A-category film festivals in the Eastern Bloc. So at that time, Moscow has this ambition of being an A-category film festival, and the decision was made that one year is going to be the festival in Moscow and the next one in Karlovy Vary. So it was a kind of a Biennale yeah. type of a festival. And this was roughly from like 1959 to 93? Because exactly. then I think you guys went annual in 94. One of the questions I think people might have is how it's possible that even under that period of communist rule between 48 and 89, how did so many really great filmmakers like Milos Forman, like others, and so many great films like The Shop on Main Street and Loves of a Blonde and Closely Watched Trains and The Fireman's Ball in the 60s, how did they all still happen, Carol? Well, 60s, as it's known, meant a lot of hope for people in Czechoslovakia because, after, as, as you said, 1948, uh, the communists took over. But in early 60s, uh, things uh, started to open up a little bit and, and uh, the freedom of speech was no longer something unheard of. And especially after mid-60s, and uh, together with the Czechoslovak New Wave and uh, Miloš Forman, Vera Chytilova and others, they were giving a, a chance to shine not only in Czechoslovakia, but also at the Oscars, for yeah. instance. And yes, Karlo Ivari was there as well. And I just want to mention to your point about the Oscars, it's amazing that from 1965 through 1968, that four-year period, you guys had an Oscar nominee for Best Foreign Language Film every year, and you won in 65 and 67. I don't know that too many other countries in history have had that kind of a four-year stretch. It's amazing. But let's talk about what happened to the Czech Republic, or I guess at that point it was still Czechoslovakia, and to the Karlovy Vary International Film Festival in 1989 after what is known as the Velvet Revolution, I know that for the local film industry, it had a big impact, and also for the festival, it had a big impact. So, Christoph, maybe let's start, because we should note you're also you're a producer who also recently produced Anthropod, the movie with Jamie Dornan and others. From your understanding, what happened to the Czech film industry as a result of the Velvet Revolution? I think it was an interesting moment, because all the names you mentioned before, Miloš Forman and and the important Czechoslovak filmmakers, they came back, they have this expectation, well, it's going to happen there. And that time, the Minister of Culture of Czech Republic, they decide not to support Karlo Evare Film Festival. And thanks to these important directors, actually the festival came back to the to the map because they thought, the, the Minister of Culture, that a festival like that has no chance to survive the the new you know wave of how the country is, is seen nowadays. Miloš Forman came there back to 1990 and they start, start to support the festival and then 1994 Mr. Bartoszka who is the president of the festival he became the, the president of, of the foundation who started to support the, the festival in Karlovy saying that it's definitely a important festival in the history and that's the new wave of of a film festival there and you mentioned this period in 94 where maybe we can mention that this person that you referenced jerry bartoshka is one of the great actors of from your country sort of your version of sean connery he 
came on and became the festival president, but also the festival itself, I think what you're referencing maybe is that it stopped being under the control of the government, right? And it became a private thing that actually flourished on its own, right, Carol? Indeed it is. And when I talk with my colleagues from festivals around the world, I'm really happy to mention this aspect of the festival, it being a, a private company run uh, by you know our boss, the president, because we are not connected to any, let's say, political parties, movements, where when the government changes, it doesn't threaten the festival. There is absolute freedom for our work, whereas uh, other festivals are strongly connected to ministers of cultures. And it always reminds me a story from Venice Film Festival. A few years ago, after a year when no Italian film got awarded, the minister of culture back then, he said on Monday after the festival that next year I'm going to talk into the selection of the jury members and to the selection of the movies. <laughs> right. So nothing like that can ever happen in Carlo Iovari, and it, it's a really great source of freedom in work. We are supported by the Ministry of Culture very strongly nowadays, but it's a different compared to the other European festivals. Right. We 80% of, of the budget is from sponsors and the private companies, and the rest is from the government, which is normally its opposite. And you greatly impressed the government over the years that since it's been private. I think maybe you can talk, Christoph, about the association of Václav Havel, when he was still around, I mean, he was one of the biggest fans of what you guys were doing. Yeah, it's connected to the to Mr. Bartoszka, who, as you said, he was a, one of the biggest Czech actors in the 80s. He was the real superstar, and because having only one TV program and one magazine, he always said being an, uh, on the front page of the magazine, it meant that you are on three and a half millions people, you know, who can read you and... And being a star in a TV show, it means that eight million people were watching you every Sunday. Yeah. And he was a personal friend to Václav Havel, and he supported him very much when Václav Havel was in prison. And back then, when Mr. Bartoszka became the president of the festival, everybody was waiting if Havel is going to show up, because there was the, a new festival in Prague with the ambition of, uh, they, they took us the, the A category, and they were People were expecting where is he's going to come. And the Prague Film Festival was week before Kaloe Vare, and he didn't show up in Prague. So it was <laughs> like, oh, is he going to come to Kaloe Vare? <laughs> and there was the moment that changed the whole game. He came there the very first night. And so people in Czech Republic, they knew that Kaloe Vare Film Festival is the one with this strong support. Yes. And there was a, Havel was a Miloš Forman who sent a Mia Farrow to Kaloe Vare with his letter saying, you know, you survive Moscow, you will survive a Prague Film Festival. <laughs> and these people always stand behind the festival. Yeah. Thanks to Václav Havel, Secretary of State, Marlene Albright, start to support Karlo Evary Film Festival. And having all these people on board, it changed the game. And you told me a funny story where one night you, you wind up in a jazz club with Madeleine Albright and Václav Havel and Jerry Bartoszka. And yeah. you say, how did I get here, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I want to ask more about each of you because before the Velvet Revolution in 1989, you had no way of seeing many of the great Hollywood classics that everybody talks about in studies around the world. And yet you both were in love with cinema at a time even before then. So how did you each come to this passion? And then how did things evolve sort of after the Velvet Revolution as far as your own ability to pursue this interest? Christoph, if you take us first. When the Velvet Revolution came in 1989, I was in the first year of the high school. 
which was a fantastic experience because once you were at the high school, you already felt that you are a part of the the whole movement. Even we were super small kids, mm-hmm. you know, compared what you can see nowadays. Mm-hmm. That time, no, but we felt that we are <laughs> the big ones. Right. There was always a film club at the high school. There were screenings every Tuesday and a famous Kinod Labachov <laughs> at the Prague Six. So I was a member of that. And that's actually how it started because I've seen the, the incredible movies like the very heavy one, the Tarkovsky and, and yeah. you know, and I was like, come on. <laughs> that was actually the moment when I started to work for a film festival. I said, this is going to be only about the Tarkovsky and these things. And thanks to God, my very first film I've seen in Karlo was Trainspotting. So I, <laughs> I knew that it's okay. Right. And Karl? Unlike Christoph, who comes from Prague, I come from a small town, so it it took longer for local cinemas to start programming older films for us to catch up with it. But immediately in early 90s, Czech television or Czechoslovak television started to program sort of evenings with old the classic, especially American cinema, which I was watching ferociously and sometimes I even took ill because there was a repetition, <laughs> repetition the day after. I remember, I don't know, somebody up there likes me with Paul Newman or films with Errol Flynn, etc. So this was the beginning. Then I went to Prague to study at the university in 1992 and I was slacking a lot going to <laughs> see movies in the local archive and caught up with stuff. And actually this is uh, one of the tasks of the festival the, throughout the retrospectives and tributes and the reason why the tributes especially from 1970s especially American cinema are so popular because people in our country did not have a chance to right. see films like Harold and Maud. Yeah, I remember reading about the just the phenomenal mood change there was at your festival after people saw that movie which but I mean I I actually think we should emphasize that it wasn't only American movies that were kept from Czech people prior to the Velvet Revolution, there were a lot of Czech films that were sort of put in the vault. And so I read about this 1990 edition of the Karlo Vivar International Film Festival where for the first time, just after the Velvet Revolution, people were getting to see many of these movies. It was a very emotional thing, right? Very much so, uh, especially uh, considering the fact that people knew about these films. So it's something that we don't really realize how it must feel that if you know about a film and you know there's an amazing film but you cannot see it right. because nowadays you basically can see anything. Yeah. So that must have been frustrating at first but then really satisfying to be there actually at the festival and to see them. Let's talk now about how each of you came to the festival and evolved through it. I, Christoph, I, I think that you were there first as a attendee a year before you started. So take us through, starting in 1996, first time at the Karlo Vivari International Film Festival. A couple of my friends in Prague during the summer were saying, we go to Karlo Vivari to, to the film festival. And I said, why to go to Karlo Vivari? <laughs> it's, you know, it's a film festival with these crazy super art Tarkovsky movies. <laughs> and so I went, I said, okay, I go with you. So I went there and I realized that is the, the phenomenal atmosphere there. And Thanks to God, we were able to keep this atmosphere there until nowadays. Yes. So I was there and I said, this is fantastic. And I really, as I said, I was expecting heavy movies. And the very first one in the main hall, I've seen Trainspotting. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's amazing. <laughs> and then you see all the people, you know, from Prague. And then right after the screening, everybody went out. There, There is a pool side of the Hotel Thermal, the, the heart of the festival. And you were there having beers and discussing the, the, the films. And 
the atmosphere was very unique. And day after, I've seen I was sleeping in my parents' car. <laughs> I parked it close to the hotel thermal. Right. I was watching Mr. Bartoshka walking down the street with some people around him. Said, "That's cool. I would love to be one day. I'd love to be one of the people around him." And friend of mine who was work who started to work for the for Karlovy Vary. Here after I call him and I say, "Hey, give me a give me a job. I don't want to be a driver or whatever. It's it's available." And he called me and he said, "There is a, a Miss of Czechoslovakia or Czech Republic that time, and she needs an assistant for the guest service for sponsors." And I said, "Okay, thank you. perfect. It's for months. I'll be part of it." And that's actually how it started. And the year after, they offered me a two months job and then three month jobs. And I've got the, uh, also I started taking care about the international guests coming to the festival. And, and then after I was graduated at the Prague Charles University, they offered me the whole year job. And, and that was the time when the previous general manager left the company and Mr. Bartoszka said, hey, Mucha, you know, the, the guys from the sponsors get, so let's go there. We have to start to, to getting money from there. And then, then we felt that we have to open the position managing director or executive director. That's what is my position. And you've been in that job since 2004, right? Yes. And Carol, you were just going about your business in Paris. And what happened? I got a phone call from a former colleague from the university, from the film studies, that the position of the jury secretary was open, which did not require for me to come back earlier. So I just came to Karlovy Vary, maybe a week earlier to Prague, and uh, immediately I was exposed to these amazing personalities of of the cinema, like Krzysztof Zanussi or Jafar Panahi, who were on the jury that very year. It was really unforgettable. And right after the festival, and now I have to mention the second instrumental, crucial person for the 1990s, especially development of Karlovy Vary, next to Mr. Bartoszka, which was Mrs. Zauralova, the artistic director, former artistic mm-hmm. director. She offered me a job. Mm-hmm. to join the programming team uh, as of January 1st, 2002, mainly focused on documentaries. I sort of snuck my way into the uh, retrospectives and tributes uh, along the way, and I kind of stole it for me because that's always been my favorite part of the job. And the very same Mrs. Aurora offered me her position at the end of 2010, and as of 2011, I've been artistic director Amazing. and closely working with Christoph ever since. So a big part of the year for each of you every year is traveling around the world, attending different film festivals. I know Sundance can, New York, and the list goes on, and basically scouting options for Carlo Vivari. So when you're doing that and you're programming your festival, how do you balance Czech moviegoers' hunger for Hollywood films, which I, I believe has probably carried over from the time when they couldn't get them at all, mm-hmm. with the desire to also highlight very important work from Central and Eastern Europe, sure. where there's great work that doesn't always get as much attention. So how do you weigh those things against each other, Carol? It needs to be said that Carlo Vivari is known mainly for its focus on uh, Central Eastern Europe, former Soviet Union countries, Balkans, etc. It doesn't mean that we don't focus on uh, the rest of the world, on the contrary, but since we are in a key film event in the in the region, the producers and the sales companies tend to offer us more films coming from these countries. You mentioned Hollywood. I wouldn't say it's that much of Hollywood anymore. It was more in 90s. We are very keen on presenting, especially American independent cinema. Mm-hmm. In fact, our 
annual scouting starts in Sundance, where we're actually uh, off uh, later this week, and then we usually have the best. From there, fortunately, including the filmmakers, uh, young especially, it doesn't mean that every now and then we don't have a smart Hollywood film as a, let's say, regional or local premiere, uh, because we like to work with our distributors on that, and we have talents in town, so we promote it. But I would say we cover pretty much the entire world. Uh, now it's the time when we start to scout more outside Europe, let's say Arab countries, South uh, South America, etc. So the world is big and we have 200 slots. Yeah, and it's really, for uh, attendee, I-, I can say now I've really, it's great to have the combination of, as you say, indie American movies that people might have missed at Sundance or whatever, like the big sick. I'm just thinking from this past year, mm-hmm. or Good Time, which I think came out of Cannes, or Wind River, or Baby Driver, with great European films. I, I saw, I remember seeing In the Fade there, which now has since won the Best Foreign Language Film Globe and Critics' Choice Award. And then also things from countries that I think most people would have a hard time finding on the map, but they make great movies like Georgia. I, I, and then what's great is that, so a guy like George Ovashvili makes Corn Island, which is this beautiful movie, and then you guys bring him back to be on a jury. So it's a continuing relationship with, with these filmmakers, right? Many of them come back it time and again. It is indeed, because they feel a lot of love from the audience, from the festival, mm-hmm. because this is how we treat films, and not only from people from the programming team, but from all every other section of the festival department, because we work, all of us together, and know section or department is higher than the others. They love coming back. Nowadays, you have a lot of talking about industry aspects and business, etc., connected to festivals. We'd like to say that we're old-fashioned in uh, in terms of being focused mainly on making possible the contact of a filmmaker through his film or her film with the audience. We work strongly on our industry as well, but that, that classical, let's say, original aspect of a film festival is very important for because us. Because you've said there's not a traditional marketplace, but there is within the Grand Hotel PUP, I think, an industry facilitations for people who want to make connections within the industry. And that can happen in a formal level in your actual industry lounge, or it can happen at the disco tech down beneath in the basement. I mean, it's it's the networking opportunities are amazing. It is, and it's a relaxed atmosphere, which is why a lot of industry people likes to come back. And we've witnessed numerous times situations like Certain producers saw a first film by a filmmaker from Russia or from Georgia, somewhere from the Balkans, and he would come to her or him saying, I want to work with you on the next film because I just loved not only your film, but the way the audience reacted mm-hmm. on your film because the audience is our most valuable asset. The last question I'll ask is, let me preface it by saying one of my favorite things about the way you present or sort of tease your offerings each year is along the... River Teplis, you have posters that go on each side because, again, it goes right through the middle of the town. On each side are dozens and dozens of posters with an image and the title and I think even maybe the showtimes of the different films that you have. It's an, it's an amazing way to digest that because you want to walk around the town and that way you can't avoid it. So this year, the 53rd KVIFF will be from June 29th through July 7th. Christoph first, then Carol, can you tease anything about it, or is it still too early? In fairness to you guys, you still have a half year to figure it out, but uh, in the meantime, do you know anything about you know retrospectives or anything about what might be coming? I think we will announce all these things soon. 
around the Berlinale, so we are not allowed to say anything right now. <laughs> but what we will, of course, try to do again, it's to bring the to audience to to Carlo Evare and to give the filmmakers the chance to present their fantastic work in front of the fantastic audience and then have a time to talk about it and having a good drinks and, and fun. Carol. Parties, because parties, let's say not organized parties, but improvised parties in the streets of the town where people just came out of the movie and they're full of interest of talking about it with other people, with the filmmaker itself. That's the atmosphere of the festival and that's the reason why why everybody likes to come back and there's no wonder that they used to call us a Woodstock of, a, <laughs> of, of film. So we like to really support this aspect. It's a beautiful event. You guys do a terrific job. Thank you for coming on here. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. And now for my interview with Rachel Brosnahan. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter in Los Angeles, the 27-year-old and I discussed a wide range of topics, among them, how a girl who was both a musical theater performer and a member of the wrestling team while in high school wound up in New York as a student at NYU and simultaneously auditioning for professional acting jobs, how... For House of Cards, she initially auditioned for the part of Zoe Barnes, which she ultimately lost to Kate Mara, but later auditioned for the part of Rachel Posner, which she won, and which, because of her work, was expanded from just a few lines in one episode to episodes spanning three seasons. Why she is proud of the work she did between House of Cards and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on both seasons of the short-lived WGN America show Manhattan from 2014 through 2015, but regretful of the work that she did for Woody Allen on the Amazon limited series Crisis in Six Scenes, which hit the service in 2016. How someone who had never previously done comedic work wound up crafting a characterization for, auditioning for, and landing the starring role on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, a job for which performing stand-up is integral. What she makes of the sexual misconduct reckoning that has engulfed Hollywood, including her former show House of Cards, as well as much of the rest of the world, and how she thinks this climate is impacting the way people are consuming the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Golden Globe winner, Rachel Brosnan, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. How does it feel? Have you been hearing that a lot the last couple of days? I hardly left the hotel room yesterday, <laughs> so really just today. Oh, all right, <laughs> there we thank go. Thank you. Sure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And I just want to state for the record, and your publicist is here and will vouch for this, I asked for this before, so I'm not a fair weather friend. <laughs> this is, we've been so excited to get you in here because it's just the greatest show. Thank and you. let's talk about you. So where were you born and raised and what did your folks do for a living? Oh, wow. Uh, we're going way back. Yes. So I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but I was raised in Highland Park, Illinois. Mm-hmm. My dad was the vice president of the International Division of a Children's Book Publishing Company, and my mother stayed home with us. There you go. What sort of a kid would your friends say you were if we got them in here? What, would we hear you were the theater geek or the, you know, the cool girl or mean girl or what, what was Definitely it? not cool. Right. <laughs> Far from cool. Right. I was definitely a theater kid, but also kind of shy. I I liked to perform selectively. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Definitely had some stage fright then, still have some now. I read a lot. Mm -hmm. My mom goes back and forth between saying that I was kind of goofy and also very serious. When I wanted something, I meant it. I took it very, very seriously. And I guess I'm still a little like that now. (laughs) And so is Midge. Yeah, right. 
Where did the performing start? Was that in school? At what point in school? You know, just that question. So in elementary school, we did some class plays where Mm -hmm. we drew our parts out of a hat. Mm -hmm. So I played a wide variety of characters from from, uh, Little Red Riding Hood to tree number two. (laughs) And uh, and I caught the bug. Yeah. And the interesting thing that I came across, I hope it's true in prepping for this, is that in a way you were even more qualified to star on Glow than on Mrs. Maisel. (laughs) What is this about you being on the wrestling team in high school? Is that true? Yeah, it is. I wrestled for two years, my freshman and sophomore year of high school. It's a, it was a male and female team or they had a female wrestling team or how did it work? I was the only girl on our team. There was a girl on varsity when I was, I think on varsity when I was a freshman. Mm -hmm. I don't even think I was in JV at freshman wrestling. But the thing about wrestling is that it's separated by weight class. And so gender aside, male or female, you have strengths and you have weaknesses and and you're paired with people who weigh the same Mm -hmm. as you, but somebody might be stronger than you. You might be faster than them. And it's about honing your own unique skill set. But how'd you even get into that? That's not you know, for better or worse, it's not something many women do, I think, young women. So I had a lot of dude friends growing up. Yeah. I, I grew up, I snowboarded. I had a group of friends that I snowboarded with and a bunch of my friends did it or had tried it at some point. A lot of my friends wrestled in junior high mm-hmm. and I wanted to really badly and my parents wouldn't let me. And so I got to high school, I was nearly an adult and <laughs> I, I I went for it and I, and I loved it. I wish I could have continued with it. So you, instead of pursuing wrestling, go off after graduating, I guess in 08, you go off to NYU Tisch, which I assume means you knew at that point already that this is what you wanted to do professionally. That wrestling was not the dream anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yes. Uh, Yes. How did that go over with your parents? Were they supportive of this? It's not, this is another unconventional path. Yeah. They were supportive. They were scared for me, mm-hmm. I think. no, Nobody wants their kid to come home and say, Mom, Dad, I'm going to be an actor. <laughs> All they hear is waitress. Right, right. And that's not, not <laughs> ideal. So they were scared, but they were very supportive and they, they knew I wanted it. They wanted to make sure that I would work for it. So when I, when I first thought that this might be what I wanted to do as a career mm-hmm. and wanted to take acting classes in Chicago. They told me if I wanted to do that, that was fine, but I'd have to save up some babysitting mm-hmm. money and pay for them myself. Mm-hmm. And and I think they were testing my resolve. Right. <laughs> but once I went, they, they were very supportive, yeah. Being in New York for college, I assume, means that you could continue and did clearly continue to audition even while you were in school. And it sounds like you started getting work pretty quickly. And a lot of it seems initially guest shots on yeah. different series. Uh, I saw some credits there for In Treatment, which I think is one of the best yeah. shows I've ever seen. And Blink good. and you'll miss me, but it but was hey, a blast. You know, yeah, and it, you're doing it for HBO. And then you've got The Good Wife and Blacklist and CSI, all this stuff. How did you juggle it with school? And did you feel like, you know, things were even ahead of schedule at that point? It's hard to know where you're at in the middle of anything while you're that age and in college. I just felt like a chicken running around with my head (laughs) cut off at any and all times. It was really challenging. I had a wonderful manager from Wilmette, Mm -hmm. Illinois, so women I I had essentially grown up with, who helped me manage my school schedule with auditions. It was equally as important to her as it was to me that I graduated. Mm -hmm. But it was tough. I I had to 
fake quite a few illnesses and, <laughs> and <laughs> doctor's appointments. And, right. But it was great because it gave me the ability to learn my craft in school in a very controlled environment and then go out and try and fail a lot mm -hmm. and come back to school and ask questions about everything that went wrong. <laughs> were, were any of those early jobs particularly memorable or beneficial to you when you were doing them while still in college? Yeah. I mean, you can't learn how to be on a set anywhere but on a set. Mm -hmm. So every single one of those jobs was different and, and I learned a lot from each one. I think the one that stands out the most was I did a movie called Coming Up Roses mm -hmm. when I was 18, I think, with Bernadette Peters. Yeah. And it was about a mother-daughter. And first of all, she's just effervescent. But she is one of the hardest working people I have ever met. And just the opportunity to watch her over such an extended period of time, we shot the movie over the course of five weeks, mm -hmm. was a gift that I will be forever grateful for. She was so kind to me and just encouraged me to keep going. I was so scared. It was my first big role mm -hmm. in a film. It was an independent film. Mm -hmm. The stakes were fairly low, but they felt enormous yeah. internally. Probably that one sticks out the most. Now, she's somebody who's mostly known for her work in the theater. Was yeah. that something that you were open to or did you know you wanted to pursue screen acting particularly? No. Initially, I had no interest at all in screen acting. I wanted to be a theater actor mm. exclusively. And I, I grew up just north of Chicago. Chicago has one of the most oh, yeah. amazing theater scenes in the country. And I thought I would do that forever. The film and TV stuff came up initially as something to pay the bills mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and also something that would give me a, a different kind of experience. Yeah. In school, I was learning mostly about theater acting. Mm -hmm. And I still love theater. It's my first true love yeah. and hope I can do that forever too. Okay. So that was some of the stuff before anyone really was paying close attention to you as a up and coming actress. You're just still in school. From the way I understand it, you were 21. You're about to graduate from NYU. And then along comes this potential part on a show for Netflix, which at the time most people only knew as a DVD by mail place. How did you first hear about this part of another Rachel on House of Cards? And was it even a big deal to you when you first heard about it? It was definitely a big deal. I mean, I heard about it through very standard channels. Mm -hmm. My my agent sent an email, said, go in for this. I actually first auditioned for the role of Zoe. Really? Which Maybe I you didn't... can remind folks who Zoe is. Yeah, versus... Kate, Kate Mara played yes. Zoe on House of Cards. And I didn't remember that until I was going back through some old emails and, and sorting them into folders right. and trying to clean up my whole life <laughs> and found that, that that was my first audition and suddenly it all came rushing back. And then came in much later, I feel like, for, for the role of Rachel, which was then just call girl with some dummy sides. <laughs> so really at the beginning, what the part was proposed to be was just, I saw like five lines or something, or one episode and like very few lines. What was it when you first heard about it? it it's hard to remember yeah. exactly, um, I, but it was, it was definitely not what it became. Yeah. It, it was either an under five or something close. Mm -hmm. And I know it was one episode with the potential to come back for maybe one more, mm -hmm. if I'm remembering correctly. So what happened? Like, I've read different things where one thing said Bo Willeman was really impressed by you. Another thing 
was in, implying that it was really Michael Kelly who played Doug Stamper going to bat and saying that you were just terrific and should keep on. Obviously, you made your own contributions by being good, but how did you find out that it was evolving? Well, it was episode by episode. Only Bo and, and our producers, I suppose, really know what went down. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. I was just petrified. That's all I remember. Why? Well, because it was it felt big. Right. Internally, it felt huge. Even when it was a small part, it felt monumental in my then very, very young career. So when you got it after, I assume, an audition, that yeah. was very exciting. Yes, very much. Okay. Again, if I'm remembering correctly, it was that we got a call saying, we'd like you to come back for one more episode and then one more. But mm-hmm. it was it was episode by episode. Each one was a surprise. And I was just so thrilled that they wanted and had found a way to continue this character that I had really enjoyed finding. At the time, it was very different from anything I'd ever done. I'd played a lot of very young of wide-eyed <laughs> chicks at that point and and this was completely different and not something that I was necessarily sure I had in my wheelhouse so well there have been something about like maybe you were too young is that what the or too young looking yeah I, I just remember being told to definitely put some makeup on <laughs> wear a tighter dress yeah. you know look a little bit more mature right I guess it ended up being in the first season how many episodes were there just like very few in the first, but then you're back for all basically. I think it actually ended up being six or seven in the first, Okay, but, but just a scene or two here. Right, right, right. And then I found out before the second season started, Bo called me into his office and told me that they, they wanted to bring me back for eight. And then of course, one in season three, Yes, which we can come to in a second, but I want to first ask one thing I noticed which is kind of strange to me, I wonder what you made of it at the time, was that after the first season of House of Cards dropped onto Netflix, you made your Broadway debut in a revival, right, of The Big Knife. This is Clifford Odette's from 1949, his play, playing a young woman who people want to knock off because she's got a secret. Yep. Kind of yeah. a strange parallel. I didn't parallel. make that connection at the time, but it is kind of a strange parallel now that you mention but, it. <laughs> but anyway, so you, you... I had a type suddenly. Yeah, I was going to say, what a weird niche. Yeah. But So you come back for season two. How early on did you find out what Rachel's fate was going to be here? I assumed at any given moment that Rachel could be knocked off. <laughs> and really, she could have been. Right. No one's fate was ever certain no. <laughs> on that show. Zoe didn't last forever either. Yeah, so. but she knew about that before she started. She did, okay. Yeah. It felt still, even though I knew I was going to do eight in the second season, it felt still episode by episode. I just remember feeling so overwhelmed and grateful and scared, but in the greatest way. Um, every time I came back, it, it was set filled with some of the greatest talents in this business. And and so much of my work was with Michael Kelly, mm-hmm. who could not possibly have been any kinder or more generous. Which sounds me. funny because I know, <laughs> I know. He's a great right, actor. Right, right, right. So he was a great scene partner. And then I guess really for that one episode of season three where we 
unfortunately do have to say goodbye to Rachel. For that, you received this Best Guest Actress in a Drama Series Emmy nomination. That must have felt like a pretty big milestone in your career at that point or at any point in a career, right? Yeah. I mean, it was shocking. I just was so not expecting that, given that I'd, I'd only done the one episode. It was a huge honor. I just remember reading that episode and and thinking about how lucky I was that that was the send off mm-hmm. I was given and what a gift that was from Bo and and crew. Was any part of you also feeling anxious because now what do I do or did you already have another project lined up at that point? No, you know what? At that time, I had begun work already. The timeline is all blurring together I think for me. It was Manhattan. on Manhattan. Yeah. I definitely knew about, oh yeah, no, I, you know, we'd shot our first season of Manhattan because we, this is a weird tidbit, but Rachel met an end on the back lot of one of our Manhattan sets <laughs> really? at Bonanza Creek in, that, in New Mexico. Just purely coincidentally. It, completely coincidentally. Oh, that's convenient. Could you yeah. just go over to the next set the next <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I mean, it was, it was during our hiatus, <laughs> right, but right, it right. was uh, very weird to go yeah. back to New Mexico to, to get knocked that. off yeah. <laughs> yeah. as I was still alive on another show right. that shot there so on Manhattan which unfortunately only was on WGN America for two seasons but critics who saw it loved it and now people are discovering it I guess on Hulu and yeah. it, it is getting the attention that it I guess it never really got when it was on the air you played a character Abby who Maybe I, can I leave it to you to set it up a little bit just about who this woman was? Because it it's a very interesting premise. Yeah, so Manhattan was about the Manhattan Project, the building of the atomic bomb in the 1940s in Los Alamos, New Mexico. And Abby Isaacs was the wife of a young wonderkind scientist who was asked to come and be a part of the team. And we in the show, pick up our whole lives and move with our young son out to the desert of New Mexico and utter chaos ensues. <laughs> and this would have been, I guess, your first substantial part in a period piece, right? Yes, that's correct. So how does that, did you acclimate to that well? Do you like that, you know, having more of a departure from your real life? Do you, do you some mm-hmm. people I think like that and some people don't? I love it. Okay. The further away I can get from my own reality the, the more exciting. I, that was something that drew me to acting in the first place. I loved to read. I loved to imagine worlds that I couldn't imagine. Mm-hmm. And period pieces feel a little bit that way for mm-hmm. me. Obviously, there's a lot of resources out there to do research about mm-hmm. the time. But a lot of it you're you're filling in for yourself. And man, our, our set was incredible. We had amazing costumes. I loved working on that show. So I people can now go and catch up and check it out. Yeah. But, so that was on the air 2014 to 2015. You know Mar- my timeline better than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Marvelous Miss Maisel. Do you say Maisel? Maisel. Maisel like Basil. Why do I always get that? Okay. You are not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> so that goes on in 2017. In between, I think, you actually had your a previous interaction with Amazon through the Woody Allen, what ended up being a miniseries, Crisis in Six Scenes. Yeah. So that was out on in 2016. Got to ask, because that was a, another substantial part. Did you learn anything in particular from working with him? He's obviously, for whatever anyone wants to say, he's gotten more female performers to do outstanding work over the years. And I think carried more to Oscar nominations and wins than anyone else in the business. So what what is it with him? 
Look, I I had a great experience working on that project, but I I do have to take this opportunity to say that for me, I have really struggled with the decision to do that project for a long time. And it is, honestly, it's the most, it's a decision that I have made in my life that is the most inconsistent with everything I stand for and believe in, both publicly and privately. Mm -hmm. And while I can't take it back, it's important to me moving forward to make decisions that better reflect the things that I value mm-hmm. and my worldview. So when you sign up to do that, it was originally an open-ended thing that became a limited series, right? Or was it always I a... I don't think so, okay. no. As far as I understand, mm-hmm. it was only meant to be six parts. I was in four of them. Gotcha. Yeah. For the Mrs. Maisel mm-hmm. portion, which I'm going to try to get that right going forward, and it's not, I mean, I, I loved watching it. I just keep changing it in my own head. <laughs> Let me start by asking you this. As a, I guess a kid would be the phrase, were you someone who grew up watching Gilmore Girls or anything else from Amy Sherman Palladino and Daniel Palladino, who are the married folks behind the show? I did grow up watching Gilmore you did. Girls. I mean, I think every woman and a lot of men my right. age did. Yes, I, I I grew up watching Gilmore Girls. I was so thrilled to see that they had this new show coming and fell in love with this script from the very first page. And the first time you saw it, I believe you were actually to come back to the stage doing what was one of the hottest tickets I remember in New York, which was alongside David Oyelowo and Daniel Craig. You were playing Desdemona in Othello, and you you then get this script, or I guess at the time it's just a pilot, right? What goes through your mind when you're looking at the material but also thinking, what have I done in my life that makes them think that this is a character that I would play? Well, it it came across my desk actually before we started doing Othello, and Again, but through very standard channels, it was just an audition. Mm-hmm. I think they were seeing every eligible maiden mm-hmm. in the land <laughs> for this. So I don't think that yeah. I was really on anyone's radar at that point. Because you um, hadn't really done comedy, had you? I had never, no. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> and honestly, when I read it, I think I read it through a more dramatic lens. Mm-hmm. To me, I, I was attaching to the parts of this woman... I responded to her life falling apart, to her finding her voice at a time when that wasn't expected or encouraged. I guess finding a second voice, Mm -hmm. this second coming of age. I wasn't necessarily (laughs) thinking about the comedy at first. (laughs) That was something that I I learned much later. (laughs) Well, it was, (laughs) and it was funny because somebody recently interviewed Amy about you, and I guess she said, quote, I only knew her from getting kidnapped and thrown in the back of a van and eventually buried in a ditch, close quote. So did you ever say to her, how do you, if that's all you knew about me, how do I even make it onto the list of people to meet with? Like what, I mean, I, obviously she had some great instinct, but. I was uh, too scared to ask. You know what? <laughs> I was too scared to ask. No, I, I really still don't entirely understand how that happened, but I'm, I'm immensely grateful that they took this leap with me. I loved every minute of prepping this project. I'm a complete research nerd, prepping for the audition. Well, I, that's what I wanted to ask you. Yeah. Like, so you're doing other projects that require a lot of your time in the run-up to going to this audition, but at the yeah. same time, you know that 
this could be a, a, a great opportunity. How much and in what ways do you prepare for something like that where I guess it's actually there, there's a lot you could do? Yeah. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, this is a story about this woman and she is fully fleshed out. So I was trying to figure out who this woman was and, and what drove her. And I think I latched on very quickly to the fact that Midge is for better and for worse, very single-minded. Mm-hmm. She's very, very focused on on whatever she has chosen to dedicate her life to in any given moment. And I also wanted to familiarize myself with the comedy scene of that time, something I was largely unfamiliar with. Like mid to late 50s. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So I watched a lot of documentaries about Joan Rivers, Phyllis Diller, Moms Mabley, Don Was that Rickles. your gut saying that's who this might have been inspired by or were you getting some guidance from whoever was coordinating the audition? No, initially I, I had no idea if Midge was inspired by anybody. Initially, I thought that she was inspired by a woman named Jean Carroll who was kind of the earliest example I could find of a non-vaudevillian female comedian. I found stuff from her as early as 1955, but she was incredibly feminine and beautiful and wore a string of pearls and a gorgeous dress and talked a lot about her family and her husband and sang a little. (laughs) And I was so sure for a while that that's who had inspired Midge. But I came to realize that Midge is inspired by a handful of of different women. Because I think the one that most frequently has been invoked has been Joan Rivers. But there are actually, for as many similarities, I guess, with between the characters, there are also some major differences. She wanted to be an actress, not a comedian, right? Absolutely. And also, I think their comedy comes from a completely different place. Mm -hmm. The biggest difference between the two women for me is that Joan Rivers was a woman who felt like she never fit in, Mm -hmm. that she was an ugly duckling, she was destined to be an old maid, and that's what a lot of her sets were about. Mm -hmm. Midge is somebody who is fully aware that she fit in better than anyone else, (laughs) that she was the model woman of her time because she wanted to be, and Mm -hmm. she worked her butt off. But she finds her own comedic voice when her whole life falls apart, when she realizes that everything is not as perfect as she thought it was, and that she has a lot of questions that she didn't know she had Mm -hmm. about her place in the world, about what it means to be a woman in this world, about what it means to be a woman and a mother and a working mother. Mm -hmm. And so that's where they separate for me. I guess another thing you had to deal with before going in for the audition was figuring out the voice and the cadence of speech of this character, which is very distinct and, <laughs> and interesting. And as I think I'm allowed to say, I think it's a very recognizable for Jewish folks like myself. <laughs> I think, are, are, can I ask, are you also yourself Jewish? I would assume. I'm not actually, you're not. but I grew up deeply immersed yeah. in Jewish community and culture. Yeah. In Highland Park, Illinois, I was certainly a minority. My dad likes to say that when I was in kindergarten, he didn't tell me this until recently, but apparently I came home and I said, Daddy, what's my Hebrew name? And was very disappointed to learn that I didn't have one. But I spent a lot of time being welcomed into my Jewish friends' homes and to services with them and and holiday celebrations. So when I read this script, despite the fact that I'm a Gentile, (laughs) it felt familiar. Mm -hmm. And so how did you decide, you know, the vocal decisions that you had to make here? I think I looked to a few different women that I have known in my own life, one being my fabulous grandmother, June, (laughs) and a couple of my friends 
mothers mm-hmm. from growing up and a woman who I have not told partially inspired Midge, so I, I'll leave her anonymous, <laughs> but a woman that I that I know in New York. Okay. And I was looking to them more for traits than anything else. And I guess in having pieces of them in mind, Midge's physical voice was something that came organically from that and, and evolved a little bit from the audition to the show. So can you articulate what it is that you do to your voice and speech is there I have no idea when when I say it's organic it really is just something that comes out (laughs) well you've said in other interviews I saw you said that you're a little bit of a fast talker independently yeah the speed for sure I I must be because everyone keeps asking about it and I don't think it's that crazy (laughs) it's the volume that I struggle with the volume of dialogue right coupled with the speed and a whole lot of props and and very little coverage. A lot of oneers were like shooting a mini play a day with no rehearsals over there. Well, I guess the last of the things that I have to ask you about before going into, you know, lock down this part would be, I would assume one of the things they were going to look at in an audition was you doing some stand-up. Are you somebody who in your own life has ever tried this, wanted to try it, thought you could try it? No, no, absolutely not. I have been saying that if you play a doctor on TV, you should not try to perform surgery. It would end badly for everyone. And I feel exactly the same way about stand-up. Okay. And I did do in my audition, so I auditioned with the opening wedding monologue from the pilot, the breakup scene with Joel, and the final quote stand-up set at the end but but exactly as you said i think what made it accessible to somebody who has never done stand-up and will i'm saying it right here and now will absolutely never ever 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 try it (laughs) is that it it isn't stand-up she's having a breakdown right 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 (laughs) in a very public platform and that's something that i can find internally and coupled with Amy's brilliant dialogue Mm -hmm. comes to life. If someone were to say that's something that clearly is on the other end of the spectrum for you uh, in terms of what you yourself are like, you're not going to go do stand-up. Are there some aspects of this character, though, that you do immediately tap into? I mean, you seem like a fairly positive, upbeat person, I would think. (laughs) I think so. I'm not sure anybody can hold a candle to Midge. Right, right, right. right. (laughs) Something that I have found is a common thread through Somebody asked me in an interview, like, what's something that you feel like connects all the characters you've ever played? Because they do seem on paper very different. And I had to think about it for a minute. But I think this holds true for Midge as well. There's a resilience inside Midge and in in every character that, that I've played so far that I don't know that I necessarily share exactly with them, but is certainly something I admire. Mm -hmm. And so... That felt like a way in for me. The audition itself finally comes along, and I understand that it was not under ideal circumstances, right? No. (laughs) Yeah, no. I was very, 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 very ill. Really, truly, I've never been so sick in my life. What do you think it was? I have no... The plague. Right. I have no idea. (laughs) I, I mean, you know how, like, when you have a flu or something, you... You feel like you're dying Mm -hmm. for about four days Mm -hmm. and then you begin to see the light. Mm -hmm. I'm not exaggerating when I say that 10 days into this, I still couldn't get out of bed for more than like two minutes at a time. And I actually had to reschedule my audition 
but I rescheduled it and then was so terrified that they would go elsewhere mm. because why would they have any reason to believe that this was in my wheelhouse? Right. I wasn't even really sure it was in my wheelhouse. <laughs> so I rallied a little too soon, got my butt on a plane, went out to Los Angeles and was just a disgusting <laughs> cesspool of germs. I had tissues stuffed down my shirt and my pants. I, I had to take my shoes off because my feet were sweating so much that I couldn't walk around this room. Probably like pneumonia. I may have. Yeah. I don't know. I <laughs> couldn't get out of bed to go find out. Oh my God. Yeah, it was it was ugly. But you know what? I think, well, it ended up working out okay. Yes. But also, I couldn't think about how nervous I was. I had no choice but to just do it and leave it all in the room. And that, that's what they say, right? When you're exhausted or have had the worst day of your life or have, you know, or, or are sick, yep. you, you give the best auditions. So how soon after that did you find out that you had got it? couple days I think I was still in Los Angeles when I when I found out and I actually found out I got a phone call earlier that same day saying that I had lost a part in a movie because they they really liked me they thought I was great but that I just wasn't funny oh my god <laughs> and then a couple hours later I got this That's call nice, about Maisel yeah. <laughs> And I was like yeah. very yeah. confused. A few guys, yeah. <laughs> and at that point, I guess just for anyone who's, let's say there's some non-industry folks listening, that means the pilot is a go. Yeah. It does not mean you have a series yet. So now you exactly. guys have to go to work. Again, it's a kind of a crazy system, but you've got to do a lot of work for one episode in the hope that it then leads to something else, right? Yeah. So how soon, how much time did you have between getting the part and shooting that pilot to get your act together, and along with them getting their act, everybody else getting their act together? I think about two months. Maybe it was a little shorter than that. It definitely had the script and was able to talk to Amy and Dan and ask them questions for at least a month before we started, which was an enormous gift to be able to do rehearsals, to, to, I mean, I was, I was out of town. I think I was in Vancouver, and I was up there in this little bubble just watching documentaries, reading books, reading the script over and over mm-hmm. and over again and bothering Amy mm-hmm. and Dan for, for weeks. <laughs> and when you say rehearsals, would that be just going over lines or things with the Paladinos or did you all get together actually with your other castmates? We did all get together. Mm-hmm. We I did some rehearsals. I did some rehearsals with just them, mm-hmm. largely on, on the same sort of things that we've been auditioning mm-hmm. with. I did some rehearsals with Michael Zegan, who plays Joel, with Alex Borstein, who plays mm-hmm. Susie. We rehearsed some of the scenes with the family. We really went through most of it because it it was a monumental task to shoot this pilot in 15 days. And we felt, or I felt, as much as you can, very well prepared Mm -hmm. by the time we started, ready to put it out, ready to get it done. And, you know, we, we would have been devastated, of course, if the show didn't continue. But truly, working on that pilot was one of the greatest experiences I've ever had. And if it hadn't have continued, we still would have always had that, I genuinely feel. What made it so special? I mean, one of the things I've heard, and I think Amy herself has acknowledged this, is that she's not everyone's cup of tea. Her directorial (laughs) style is unusual. I guess she's fairly assertive about what she wants, which, again, some actors love and some actors want, want more of a leash. How would you describe the way she operated here and and how you responded to it she had a crystal clear vision Mm -hmm. from the very beginning for every single breath of this pilot and 
I have never worked that way before. Uh, you know, that's not true, actually. I have my very limited, short experience with David Fincher. Yeah. is very similar. A lot of takes, um, right? A lot of takes, but very, very clear vision. For a reason, He's yeah. the smartest yeah. person in the room. And I felt very similar working with Amy. But when somebody has that clear a vision and a track record like hers, you trust them. Mm -hmm. And so even in moments where I felt the most unsure, because again, this was not my world. I felt so out of my depth <laughs> every single minute, but had these fearless leaders and, and felt comfortable giving over to them, which is not something I have experienced very often. And just this group of veteran actors, I mean, Tony Shalhoub, Maren Hinkle, Alex Borstein, we had fun. Mm -hmm. I, I have spent a lot of time in a trunk and in various <laughs> ditches in the ground. And so to fun. laugh right, while right. shooting something is, is a novel idea for right. me. <laughs> so the pilot, the way it works, I guess, with Amazon, the pilot goes up and this was in March of 2017, March 17th, 2017. And then was it still the case that the public to some degree could weigh in on whether or not they wanted this to go further than the pilot? Yeah, that's the Amazon way. Yep. They release all their pilots and the audience gets an opportunity to to vote on them. Internally, we had a pretty good sense that we would likely continue. Right. Amazon had been incredibly supportive from the beginning. And I wasn't sure whether that was something that only I had felt, but Amy and Dan have echoed that back, that they really let them do their thing. They let them spread their wings and make exactly the show they wanted to make. So we felt good, but you, you don't know until you get that phone call. And how long after locking your pilot do you have to wait around before you know that you should keep going? We didn't have to wait that long, mm -hmm. thank goodness, mm -hmm. because we started shooting, I think we started prepping in April to shoot in May. So okay. we started almost right away mm -hmm. after the pilot aired, which lucky us. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I guess both for the pilot and then beyond, one of the things I wondered is if there might be a little bit of life imitating art on the set here, because you have said you're not somebody who'd really done stand up or just comedy performance of any kind in front of people and you are co-starring here with somebody who has done comedy performance in front of people Alex Borstein yeah. who many people will remember from Matt TV yes. so in the same way that she has to kind of coach Midge about what she's doing was there some of that mentoring in a way going on about how you should even just approach your comedic scenes I mean Alex was basically like just don't fuck it up <laughs> Honestly, Very helpful. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, you know, she really, I think Alex knew as well that it was going to have to be something that I found for myself. Right. But she was unbelievably supportive, right. encouraged me to take my time and take my space where I needed it. I felt her behind me <laughs> as a warm, in her own way, right. and supportive <laughs> presence. Right. She did once say to me, which I thought was interesting, that so the way we shoot those stand up scenes, or the way we did in the mm -hmm. first couple episodes was that we would shoot one all the way through in a wide with the audience there responding just naturally with a little bit of encouragement. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then after a couple takes, we would tell the audience to mute, to pretend to clap, to mime laughing for sound, to get the sound clean. And the first couple episodes, that didn't bother me. And Alex came up to me one day and said that, a stand-up could never have played this part because performing to a silent audience would have killed them. 
<laughs> and that's how I know I'm not a stand-up right. because I didn't even notice. It didn't, didn't bother you. <laughs> but I will say that later on, I, I remembered that. And also later on, as Midge becomes better at this and as I had done it a few times and, and learned quite a lot, I began to not be able to do that anymore. And we had to adjust. Actually, playing off the audience. Yes, which I certainly wasn't the first (laughs) first couple. (laughs) (laughs) I was learning to listen to them, and they became an integral part of the performance. And so we adjusted later on. Moving towards the present, November 29th, 2017, not long ago at all, the other seven episodes go up on Amazon. How and how quickly did you get feedback from people? The internet allows mm-hmm. for pretty immediate <laughs> feedback. Right, right, um, right. I was shocked by shocked by the dedication. I really I, I bow down to the people who watched the whole thing immediately. Oh, you got to binge it. But that's also something I'm familiar with because I worked yeah, on House of Cards, exactly. which was consumed in the same way right. as a 13 hour long movie. Right. It came out at kind of a weird time. Right. It was right after Thanksgiving and right before the the holidays, and so. So people were at work, and one of the cool things about it is it feels like every day new people are discovering it. Yeah, so it was was fairly quiet at first, and just really even in the last two weeks, Mm -hmm. I'm hearing more and more people who watched it over the holidays with their families, who watched it on their own and then made their mothers watch it with them. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, it also, I guess, has helped that, you know, through social media, there have been some high-profile champions of this show who are telling people to go watch it, like... Reese Witherspoon, who else? I mean, there's a, you're on Twitter. Who are, You must be hearing from a lot of people that you never thought you'd hear from. Yeah. Rosie O'Donnell reached out to us. I'm not on Twitter as often as, as some, <laughs> some are. I feel like right. I miss a lot of things. Right. But Reese is the one that sticks out. That was pretty cool. Pretty cool. Tell me about Sunday night, which is when by far the largest number of people heard about Marvelous Miss Maisel for the first time when yeah. it was recognized at the Golden Globes with... Best Actress in a Comedy Series, yourself, and also Best Comedy Series, which everybody goes home with something. So that's, I mean, just going into that night, humility aside, did you think it was a likely outcome? And then what did you make of the whole evening? It's so hard to say. First of all, I've n- I've never really done any of that before. <laughs> so I had no idea what to expect going in. All humility aside, mm-hmm. I feel like there are often so many complete surprises mm-hmm. at the Globes. I had no clue mm-hmm. what our chances were. We were extremely pleasantly surprised. But also, I mean, the women, at least in my category, I've seen all those shows. They're extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And so this is pretty wild. I, I'm still, how long we're has only it been? Like 36 hours? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I think I'm still hungover. I'm still processing. <laughs> Where are you going to keep the statuette? Look, I live in New York. There is nowhere to put it. Um, <laughs> I think it's going to have to go in the bathroom. Stop? Oh, there we go. Oh, a one door of those stop. No, that feels rude. <laughs> Let's, if we can, close with just three big picture things, then I'll liberate you here. But yeah. is there something about this cultural moment, which I think you referenced a little bit earlier, the moment into which Mrs. Maisel's being released that mm-hmm. is impacting its reception? It do- I think it would be well-received anytime, but is it heightened in some way by the fact that it's, even though it's a show set in a pre-feminism world, does she somehow represent something, or does the show somehow represent something to particularly young women today? Because I know the way I heard about it was from a young woman who heard from another young woman (laughs) who 
you know, it just the buzz was it was going that in that way. So let me leave it to you there. That makes me smile. I think, first of all, I think the show is an optimistic one. It says that it's never too late to find a voice you didn't know you had. And that to me feels the most relevant to this very moment in time. As a collective, women are finding a new voice. And I, I think that's a big part of it. I think also a lot of period pieces, but especially this show, they hold up a mirror to the world that we currently live in. While this took place in the 1950s, it highlights a lot of battles that women faced then that we're still dealing with mm-hmm. today. One of the ones I, I think of often is how difficult it was and is to be taken seriously for your ambition. People don't like ambitious women. They never have, and especially people who are unapologetically ambitious, like Midge is, Mm -hmm. and so many extraordinary women are today. It's also dealing with this illusion of what it means to have it all and the kind of expectations that were, were and still are placed on women to be able to seamlessly look beautiful, speak well, be polite, be a perfect mother and housewife, great at your job if you have one, and also still have an eye to the future. I think that and, and the beautiful costumes mm-hmm. and, and things and the fact that it's a show that also is fun. Yeah. Things things are not great in the world at large right now. What I was saying to the people who have asked me about it is I feel like it's in some ways, and I, I hope this comes across as a compliment it's intended as, it's she sort of reminds me of of Kimmy Schmidt in <laughs> the way that you love spending time with her, but also that because it's grounded in reality, I feel more like I'm getting a meal as opposed to a, you know, a, a snack, which I think is a compliment to both shows. But Thanks. number two of three, you still have a lot of friends who are involved with House of Cards, I imagine. It's again related to the same topic. I mean, what do you make of what's happened there and how is how it's being handled and how they're handling it? Are they you know, it's a strange situation. It is. I think that it was handled beautifully. Mm-hmm. They took swift action. Mm-hmm. And I'm so I so look forward to the future of the show with Robin Wright mm-hmm. front and center. I also think, you know, in doing the press for The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, I get asked about House of Cards a lot. And I also just want to say that I think that this moment across the board is about women. It's about the courage of these women and men who came forward, who said, which is the theme of of right now, but also of Sunday night, that enough is enough. Mm -hmm. Time is up. And I do think that we need to make sure that we don't keep letting shitty men dominate the conversation about extraordinary women. Yeah. Well, the last question is, what is next for you? Do you have time to do things outside of Mrs. Maisel? And if you do, are you going to, I'm sure that the level of interest has exploded recently. Are we going to see you in a Marvel movie next or something? Or, <laughs> That'd you know, be fun. Yeah, like, so what's, Marvel, I'm here. I'm available. <laughs> She's available. But I mean, <laughs> kind of. The to-do list and the wish list. What are those for you right now? Well, I've been trying to take a little bit of downtime. This show has been a blast, but is is like running a marathon. I needed a little bit of a breather after <laughs> after we finished our first season. I have an eye out if, if the r- exact right thing comes up, but we now go back very, very soon. How much um, is a, of a hiatus was there between the seasons? We finished in September and we go back, we start 
pre-production. I think Amy went back today and started work on the season. So I'll likely go back into fittings and things in February, and then we'll start again in March. Can't wait. Very excited. Thank you so (laughs) much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, this is really awesome. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.